Part one of chapter fourteen of Equanimitas by Sir William Osler. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Part one of chapter fourteen Chauvinism in Medicine. I feel not in myself those common antipathies that I can discover in others. Those national repugnances do not touch me, nor do I behold with prejudice the French, Italian, Spaniard, or Dutch. But where I find their actions in balance with my countrymen's, I honour, love, and embrace them in the same degree. I was born in the eighth climate, but seem for to be framed and constellated unto all i am no plant that will not prosper out of a garden all places all airs make unto me one country i am in england everywhere and under any meridian sir thomas brown religio medici all's not offence that indiscretion finds and dotage terms so Shakespeare, King Lear, Act Two. Still in thy right hand carry gentle peace to silence envious tongues. Shakespeare, King Henry Eighth, Act Three. Chapter Fourteen Chauvinism in Medicine. Delivered at the Canadian Medical Association, Montreal. 1902. A rare and precious gift is the art of detachment, by which a man may be so separate himself from a lifelong environment as to take a panoramic view of the conditions under which he has lived and moved. It frees him from Plato's den long enough to see the realities as they are, the shadows as they appear. Could a physician attain to such an art, he would find in the state of his profession a theme calling as well for the exercise of the highest faculties of description and imagination as for the deepest philosophic insight. With the wisdom of the Dan only, and of my fellow prisoners, such a task is beyond my ambition and my powers, but to emphasize duly the subject that I wish to bring home to your hearts, I must first refer to certain distinctive features of our profession. 1. Four Great Features of the Guild Its noble ancestry, like everything else that is good and durable in this world, modern medicine is a product of the Greek intellect, and had its origin when that wonderful people created positive or rational science and no small credit is due to the physicians who as professor gompertz remarks very early brought to bear the spirit of criticism on the arbitrary and superstitious views of the phenomena of life if science was ever to acquire steady and accurate habits instead of losing itself in a maze of fantasies it must be by quiet methodical research 
it is the undying glory of the school of Cos that it introduced this innovation into the domain of its art, and thus exercised the most beneficial influence on the whole intellectual life of mankind. Fiction to the right, reality to the left, was the battle cry of this school in the war it was the first to wage against the excesses and defects of the nature philosophy. The critical sense and sceptical attitude of the Hippocratic school laid the foundations of modern medicine on broad lines, and we owe to it, first, the emancipation of medicine from the shackles of priestcraft and of caste, secondly, the conception of medicine as an art based on accurate observation, and as a science, an integral part of the science of man and of nature, thirdly, the high moral ideals expressed in that most memorable of human documents, the Hippocratic Oath, and fourthly, the conception and realization of medicine as the profession of a cultivated gentleman. No other profession can boast of the same unbroken continuity of methods and of ideals. We may indeed be justly proud of our apostolic succession. Schools and systems have flourished and gone, schools which have swayed for generations the thought of our guild, and systems that have died before their founders. The philosophies of one age have become the absurdities of the next, and the foolishness of yesterday has become the wisdom of tomorrow. Through long ages which were slowly learning what we are hurrying to forget, amid all the changes and chances of twenty-five centuries, the profession has never lacked men who have lived up to these Greek ideals. They were those of Galen and of Aratius, of the men of the Alexandrian and Byzantine schools, of the best of the Arabians, of the men of the Renaissance, and they are ours today. A second distinctive feature is the remarkable solidarity. Of no other profession is the word universal applicable in the same sense. The celebrated phrase used of the Catholic Church is in truth much more appropriate when applied to medicine. It is not the prevalence of disease or the existence everywhere of special groups of men to treat it that betokens this solidarity, but it is the identity throughout the civilized world of our ambitions, our methods, and our work, to wrest from nature the secrets which have perplexed philosophers in all ages, to track to their sources the causes of disease, to correlate the vast stores of knowledge, that they may be quickly available for the prevention and cure of disease. These are our ambitions, to carefully observe the phenomena of life in all its phases, normal and perverted, to make perfect that most difficult of all arts, the art of observation, to call to aid the science of experimentation, to cultivate the reasoning faculty, so as to be able to know the true from the false. These are our methods. To prevent disease, to relieve suffering 
and to heal the sick. This is our work. The profession in truth is a sort of guild or brotherhood, any member of which can take up his calling in any part of the world and find brethren whose language and methods and whose aims and ways are identical with his own. Thirdly, its progressive character. Based on science, medicine has followed and partaken of its fortunes, so that in the great awakening which has made the nineteenth memorable among centuries, the profession received a quickening impulse more powerful than at any period in its history. With the sole exception of the mechanical sciences, no other department of human knowledge has undergone so profound a change, a change so profound that we who have grown up in it have but slight appreciation of its momentous character. And not only in what has been actually accomplished in unravelling the causes of disease, in perfecting methods of prevention, and in wholesale relief of suffering, but also in the unloading of old formulae and in the substitution of the scientific spirit of free inquiry for cast-iron dogmas, we see a promise of still greater achievement and of a more glorious future. And lastly, the profession of medicine is distinguished from all others by its singular beneficence. It alone does the work of charity in a jovian and godlike way, dispensing with free hand truly Promethean gifts. There are those who listen to me who have seen three of the most benign endowments granted to the race since the great Titan stole fire from the heavens. Search the scriptures of human achievement, and you cannot find any to equal in beneficence the introduction of anesthesia, sanitation, with all that it includes, and asepsis, a short half-century's contribution towards the practical solution of the problems of human suffering, regarded as eternal and insoluble. We form almost a monopoly or trust in this business. Nobody else comes into active competition with us, certainly not the other learned professions which continue along the old lines. Every few years sees some new conquest, so that we have ceased to wonder. The work of half a dozen men, headed by Laverne, has made waste places of the earth habitable and the wilderness to blossom as the rose. The work of Walter Reed and his associates will probably make yellow fever as scarce in the British main as is typhus fever with us. There seems to be no limit to the possibilities of scientific medicine, and while philanthropists are turning to it as to the hope of humanity, philosophers see, as in some far-off vision, a science from which may come in the prophetic words of the son of Sirach, peace over all the earth. Never has the outlook for the profession been brighter. Everywhere the physician is better trained and better equipped than he was twenty-five years ago. Disease is understood more thoroughly, studied more carefully, and treated more skillfully. The average sum of human suffering has been reduced in a way 
to make the angels rejoice. Diseases familiar to our fathers and grandfathers have disappeared. The death rate from others is falling to the vanishing point, and public health measures have lessened the sorrows and brightened the lives of millions. The vagaries and whims, lay and medical, may neither have diminished in number nor lessened in their capacity to distress the faint-hearted who do not appreciate that to the end of time people must imagine vain things, but they are dwarfed by comparison with the colossal advance of the past fifty years. So vast, however, and composite has the profession become that the physiological separation in which dependent parts are fitly joined together tends to become pathological and while some parts suffer necrosis and degeneration others passing the normal limits become disfiguring and dangerous outgrowths on the body medical the dangers and evils which threaten harmony among the units are internal not external and yet in it more than in any other profession owing to the circumstances of which i have spoken is complete organic unity possible of the many hindrances in the way time would fail me to speak but there is one aspect of the question to which i would direct your attention in the hope that i may speak a word in season perhaps no sin so easily besets us as a sense of self-satisfied superiority to others. It cannot always be called pride, that master sin, but more often it is an attitude of mind which either leads to bigotry and prejudice, or to such a vaunting conceit in the truth of one's own beliefs and positions, that there is no room for tolerance of ways and thoughts which are not as ours are. To avoid some smirch of this vice is beyond human power we are all dipped in it some lightly others deeply grained partaking of the nature of uncharitableness it has not the intensity of envy hatred and malice but it shades off in fine degrees from them it may be a perfectly harmless even an amusing trait in both nations and individuals and so well was it depicted by Charlotte, Horace, Vernet, and others, under the character of an enthusiastic recruit named Chauvin, that the name Chauvinism has become a byword, expressing a bigoted, intolerant spirit. The significance of the word has been widened, and it may be used as a synonym for a certain type of nationalism, for a narrow provincialism, or for a petty parochialism. It does not express the blatant loudness of jingoism, which is of the tongue, while chauvinism is a condition of the mind, an aspect of character much more subtle and dangerous. The one is more apt to be found in the educated classes, while the other is pandemic in the fooled multitude that numerous piece of monstrosity which, taken asunder, seem men and reasonable creatures of God, but confused together, make but one great beast, 
and a monstrosity more prodigious than hydra wherever found and in whatever form chauvinism is a great enemy of progress and of peace and concord among the units i have not the time nor if i had have i the ability to portray this failing in all its varieties i can but touch upon some of its aspects national provincial and parochial nationalism in medicine nationalism has been the great curse of humanity in no other shape has the demon of ignorance assumed more hideous proportions to no other obsession do we yield ourselves more readily for whom do the hosannas ring higher than for the successful butcher of tens of thousands of poor fellows who have been made to pass through the fire to this moloch of nationalism a vice of the blood of the plasm rather it runs riot in the race and rages to-day as of yore in spite of the precepts of religion and the practice of democracy nor is there any hope of change the pulpit is dumb the press fans the flames literature panders to it and the people love to have it so not that all aspects of nationalism are bad breathes there a man with soul so dead that it does not glow at the thought of what the men of his blood have done and suffered to make his country what it is there is room plenty of room for proper pride of land and birth what i inveigh against is a cursed spirit of intolerance conceived in distrust and bred in ignorance that makes the mental attitude perennially antagonistic even bitterly antagonistic to everything foreign that subordinates everywhere the race to the nation forgetting the higher claims of human brotherhood while medicine is everywhere tinctured with national characteristics the wider aspects of the profession to which i have alluded our common lineage and the community of interests should always save us from the more vicious aspects of this sin if it cannot prevent it altogether and yet i cannot say as i wish i could that we are wholly free from this form of chauvinism can we say as english french german or american physicians that our culture is always cosmopolitan not national that our attitude of mind is always as frankly open and friendly to the french as to the english to the american as to the german and that we are free at all times and in all places from prejudice at all times free from a self-satisfied feeling of superiority the one over the other there has been of late years a closer union of the profession of the different countries through the international congress and through the international meetings of the special societies but this is not enough and the hostile attitude has by no means disappeared ignorance is at the root when a man talks slightingly of the position and work of his profession in any country or when a teacher tells you that he fails to find inspiration 
in the work of his foreign colleagues. In the words of the Arabian proverb, He's a fool, shun him. Full knowledge, which alone disperses the mists of ignorance, can only be obtained by travel, or by a thorough acquaintance with the literature of the different countries. Personal, first-hand intercourse with men of different lands, when the mind is young and plastic, is the best vaccination against the disease. The man who has sat at the feet of Virchow, or has listened to Traub, or Hemholtz, or Konheim, can never look with unfriendly eyes at German medicine or German methods. Whoever met with an English or American pupil of Lewis or of Charcot, who did not love French medicine, if not for its own sake, at least for the reverence he bore his great master. Let our young men, particularly those who aspire to teaching positions, go abroad. They can find at home laboratories and hospitals as well equipped as any in the world, but they may find abroad more than they knew they sought. Widened sympathies, heightened ideals, and something, perhaps, of a welt culture which will remain through life as the best protection against the vice of nationalism. Next to a personal knowledge of men, a knowledge of the literature of the profession of different countries will do much to counteract intolerance and chauvinism. The great works in the Department of Medicine, in which a man is interested, are not so many that he cannot know their contents, though they be in three or four languages. Think of the impetus French medicine gave to the profession in the first half of the last century, of the debt we all owe to German science in the latter half, and of the lesson of the practical application by the English of sanitation and asepsis. It is one of our chief glories and one of the unique features of the profession that, no matter where the work is done in the world, if of any value, it is quickly utilized. Nothing has contributed more to the denationalization of the profession of this continent than, on the one hand, the ready reception of the good men from the old countries who have cast in their lot with us, and, on the other, the influence of our young men who have returned from Europe with sympathies as wide as the profession itself. There is abroad among us a proper spirit of eclecticism, a willingness to take the good wherever found, that augurs well for the future. It helps a man immensely to be a bit of a hero-worshipper, and the stories of the lives of the wasters of medicine do much to stimulate our ambition and rouse our sympathies. If the life and work of such men as Bichat and Laneck will not stir the blood of a young man and make him feel proud of France and of French men. He must be a dull and muddy-mettled rascal. In reading the life of Hunter, of Jenner, who thinks of the nationality which is merged and lost in our interest in the man and in his work? In the Halcyon days of the Renaissance, there was no nationalism in medicine, but a fine Catholic spirit 
made great leaders like Vesalius, Eustachius, Stenson, and others at home in every country in Europe. While this is impossible today, a great teacher of any country may have a worldwide audience in our journal literature, which has done so much to make medicine cosmopolitan. Provincialism in Medicine While we may congratulate ourselves that the worst aspects of nationalism in medicine are disappearing before the broader culture and the more intimate knowledge brought by ever-increasing intercourse, yet in English-speaking countries conditions have favoured the growth of a very unpleasant sub-variety, which may be called provincialism or sectionalism. In one sense, the profession of this continent is singularly homogeneous. A young man may be prepared for his medical course in Louisiana and enter McGill College, or he may enter Dalhousie College, Halifax, from the state of Oregon, and in either case he will not feel strange or among strangers so soon as he has got accustomed to his environment. In collegiate life there is a frequent interchange of teachers and professors between all parts of the country. To better his brains the scholar goes freely where he wishes, to Harvard, McGill, Yale or Johns Hopkins. There are no restrictions. The various medical societies of the two countries are, without exception, open to the members of the profession at large. The president of the Association of American Physicians this year is a resident of this city, which gave also last year, I believe, presidents to two of the special societies. The chief journals are supported by men of all sections. The textbooks and manuals are everywhere in common. There is, in fact, a remarkable homogeneity in the English-speaking profession, not only on this continent, but throughout the world. Naturally, in widely scattered communities, sectionalism, a feeling or conviction that the part is greater than the whole, does exist, but it is diminishing, and one great function of the national associations is to foster a spirit of harmony and brotherhood among the scattered units of these broad lands. But we suffer sadly from a provincialism which has gradually enthralled us, and which sprang originally from an attempt to relieve conditions insupportable in themselves. I have praised the unity of the profession of this continent, in so many respects remarkable, and yet in another respect it is the most heterogeneous ever known. Democracy in full circle touches tyranny, and as Milton remarks, the greatest proclaimers of liberty may become its greatest engrossers, or enslavers. The tyranny of labor unions, of trusts, and of an irresponsible press may bear as heavily on the people as autocracy in its worst form. And, strange irony of fate, the democracy of provincial and state boards has imposed in a few years a yoke more grievous than that which afflicts our brethren in Great Britain, which took generations to forge. The delightful freedom of intercourse of which I spoke 
while wide and generous, is limited to intellectual and social life, and on the practical side, not only are genial and courteous facilities lacking, but the bars of a rigid provincialism are put up, fencing each state as with a Chinese wall. In the Dominion of Canada, there are eight portals of entry to the profession. In the United States, almost as many as there are states. In the United Kingdom, nineteen, I believe. But in the latter, the license of any one of these bodies entitled a man to registration anywhere in the kingdom. Democracy in full circle has reached on this hemisphere a much worse condition than that in which the conservatism of many generations has entangled the profession of Great Britain. Upon the origin and growth of the provincial and state boards, I do not propose to touch. The ideal has been reached so far as organization is concerned, when the profession elects its own parliament, to which is committed the control of all matters relating to the license. The recognition in some form of this democratic principle has been one great means of elevating the standard of medical education, and in a majority of the states of the Union it has secured a minimum period of four years of study and a state examination for license to practice. All this is as it should be. But it is high time that the profession realized the anomaly of eight boards in the Dominion and some scores in the United States. One can condone the iniquity in the latter country more readily than in Canada in which the boards have existed for a longer period, and where there has been a greater uniformity in the medical curriculum. After all these years, that a young man, a graduate of Toronto and a registered practitioner in Ontario, cannot practice in the province of Quebec, his own country, without submitting to vexatious penalties of mind and pocket, or that a graduate from Montreal and a registered practitioner of this province, cannot go to Manitoba, his own country again, and take up his life's work without additional payments and penalties, is, I maintain, an outrage. It is provincialism run riot. That this pestiferous condition should exist throughout the various provinces of this dominion, and so many states of the Union, illustrates what I have said of the tyranny of democracy, and how great enslavers of the liberty its chief proclaimers may be. That the cure of this vicious state has to be sought in dominion bills and national examining boards indicates into what debasing depths of narrow provincialism we have sunk. The solution seems to be so simple particularly in this country, with its uniformity of methods of teaching and length of curriculum, a generous spirit that will give to local laws a liberal interpretation, that limits its hostility to ignorance and viciousness, that has regard as much or more for the good of the guild as a whole, as for the profession of any province. Could such a spirit brood over the waters, the raging waves of discord 
would soon be stilled with the attitude of mind of the general practitioner in each province rests the solution of the problem approach it in a friendly and gracious spirit and the difficulties which seem so hard will melt away approach it in a chauvinistic mood fully convinced that the superior and unparalleled conditions of your province will be jeopardized by reciprocity or by federal legislation and the present antiquated and disgraceful system must await for its removal the awakening of a younger and more intelligent generation it would ill become me to pass from this subject familiar to me from my student days from the interest taken in it by that far-sighted and noble-minded man dr palmer howard it would ill become me i say not to pay a tribute of words to dr roddick for the zeal and persistence with which he has laboured to promote union in the compound comminuted fracture of the profession of this dominion my feeling on the subject of international intercolonial and interprovincial registration is this a man who presents evidence of proper training who is a registered practitioner in his own country and who brings credentials of good standing at the time of departure should be welcomed as a brother treated as such in any country and registered upon payment of the usual fee the ungenerous treatment of english physicians in switzerland france and italy and the chaotic state of internecine warfare existing on this continent indicate how far a miserable chauvinism can corrupt the great and gracious ways which should characterize a liberal profession though not germane to the subject may i be allowed to refer to one other point in connection with the state boards a misunderstanding i believe of their functions the profession asks that the man applying for admission to its ranks shall be of good character and fit to practice the science and art of medicine the latter is easily ascertained if practical men have the place and the equipment for practical examinations many of the boards have not kept pace with the times and the questions set too often show a lack of appreciation of modern methods this has perhaps been unavoidable since in the appointment of examiners it has not always been possible to select experts the truth is that however well organized and equipped the state boards cannot examine properly in the scientific branches nor is there need to burden the students with additional examinations in anatomy physiology and chemistry the provincial and state boards have done a great work for the medical education on this continent which they would crown and extend by doing away at once with all theoretical examinations and limiting the tests for the license to a rigid practical examination in medicine surgery and midwifery in which all minor subjects could be included end of part one chapter fourteen chauvinism in medicine
Recording by Luke Sartor Griffith, New South Wales